What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rico's Watches podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and I'm joined today by a very interesting guest, someone who is a bit of an industry insider or, uh, you know, able to give us some insight into how some of the uh, inner wheels turn in, in the watch world. Uh, my good friend, Ran, from uh, Risk Time Co. over in uh, Toronto. How's it going today? Hey, Rico. Good. How are you? Good, good. I'm, I'm really glad you're able to do this. I think this is going to be a really interesting episode, going to be full of a lot of uh, unique insights for people kind of hearing about, you know, uh, what, what the life is like for as a gray market dealer, a flipper. I don't know if you guys like being called flippers, but I think I think a gray market dealer or a secondhand dealer, um, you know, and kind of how the the biz works on that end of things, right? I've had a lot of uh, guests on the show that have come on and talked about it from like the primary market, uh, you know, being like a brand rep representatives and executives and things like that. But I haven't really had the chance to talk to a lot of uh, aftermarket dealers and things like that. Uh, you know, people like that, that are able to kind of give that insight to what happens to these watches after they've left the primary market. So I think this will be a lot of fun. Before we get into all that stuff though, I gotta ask, what do you have on the wrist today? I saw a couple glimpses and it looks like something really interesting. And I want to, I want you to tell me about it. So I got a GP Laureato. It's in full ceramic. It's on a custom strap uh, made by Ron Bespoke. Um, absolutely love the watch. Um, I actually love it because it's very legible. I wear mm -hmm. glasses and I love it how it's ceramic. So it's very light and thin, kind of blends in, gives you that little touch of sportiness, you know, and everything. Yeah, it's a really cool piece. And, and one that sort of, you know, didn't really get a ton of uh, attention for a long time. And now they've sort of really started to pick up, I think, people's appreciation for that model. What are some of the things that you find that are particularly unique about that model? I've always thought Gerard Perigo was a very underrated brand. They didn't, you know, they were doing some really impressive things that weren't necessarily getting the attention that they deserve for a long time. But that seems to be changing. What are some of the things you really like about the watch? Um, well, obviously the simplicity, you know, and style, but like you said, and you kind of nailed it that, you know, the brand was, um, you know, nowhere in a way where like it got, you know, like, how do I say it? It got basically stirred up with all the mm -hmm. big guys, the Rolexes, the APs and the attacks, and then people didn't really, you know, recognize it. But I would say about a year ago when we saw obviously the hype of the Rolex gray market and AP and everything else, Laureato took off along with it. Um, I guess it, this watch is more for the enthusiasts, right? People that know, they know, you know, most of the time when I go somewhere, if I'm, you know, getting gas or grabbing a coffee, somebody would say, hey, is that a Royal Oak, you know? Mm. And I would say, no, it's not, you know, just because of the octagonal shaped case, especially if you have a bracelet that looks like a Nautilus bracelet, but it's under the key. So uh, under the radar watch and I like it. It's, it's definitely unique. I think you kind of nailed it right there as well. It's really, it's the enthusiast watch, right? It's the one, you know, for, for the people who want that, that caliber of timepiece, like an AP or a Protect, for example, but wants the one that's sort of under the radar that really people can just appreciate for what it is without all the hype surrounding it, right? Yeah, it's definitely not a flex watch, Yeah, but it is for some, and I really do enjoy it. Do they have like, like, the flex models of the Laureato, like, do they have like the diamond encrusted, uh, you know, like rose gold versions and things like that? Or they kept that sort of as like a really conservative piece in their lineup. So they do have some interesting models. So they do have the full skeleton, right. Mm -hmm. That mimics the open works of Royal Oak, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for, 
one eighth of a price, mm-hmm. and uh, they do have some cool stuff. They lately, uh, Gerard Pergo actually partnered up with Aston Martin, mm-hmm. and they released their Green Dial. It's like a limited edition for Aston Martin, and that's pretty cool watch. But they don't. I don't. I haven't seen any gem set stones. If that's what you're asking, mm-hmm. I haven't seen any of those. They do have the full gold version, uh, but they definitely have some unique stuff. Mm-hmm. Unique, but they like to keep it classy, I guess, is sort of, that's sort of their angle. Yes. Yeah, that's really, really cool. I think so. Uh, it's such a cool model. I think it's the first one I've, any one of my guests have ever had on the show. So I think you're you're the first uh, Gerard Perigo, uh Laredo uh, owner to come on the show and talk about the watch. So I think that's super cool. Um, you know, kind of diving into, I guess, uh, Wrist Time Co. And, and your company, you know, where did all this kind of start for you? I guess like where did watches start for you? And then how did that lead you to having your own, your own company? Uh, so I was always a watch enthusiast uh, growing up. Uh, my father uh, was a pilot. So my dad always wore a watch and, mm-hmm. you know, growing up, I always saw one on his wrist and, you know, when you grow up seeing things, it kind of settles in with you uh, about five years ago. Well, six now we're in 2023. I started a company with two of my friends. It used to be called Cookstown Jewelry and Pawn. So one of my guys was a jeweler. Mm-hmm. Um, and then me and my other buddy, we were more into watches. You know, it was cool. I wasn't married back then. I thought I'm like, listen, I'll try it. I'll be on a side, see how it goes. So after we opened up a store, it was just north of uh, Toronto. It didn't really do well. Uh, we split up. Funny enough, one of the guys is actually still a jeweler. He has a boutique, he does jewelry. And my other buddy is in a completely different business. So I rebranded and I, you know, changed my name to Wrist Time Co. And, you know, after that, it just kind of, you know, piece by piece, just took off its own directions and rest is history. So but it's what sort of is like the model for wrist time co now? Like do you operate primarily online? Is it like a, a brick and mortar store? Is it both? Do you kind of do, uh, are you open to the public? Are you mostly doing private deals? Like how does that kind of, what's sort of the model for your business? So my business is mostly online. Uh, I do sell on Instagram uh, mm-hmm. and on different platforms on Canadian watch forums and a bunch of other sites. Uh, I do have a website, obviously, um, but I don't have a brick and mortar yet. Actually, one of the things we'll, I wanted to talk to you later on the show is I'm planning to get an office space this year. That was kind of the goal, you know, but most of my people, my most of my deals, I guess, happen, you know, on people will reach out and then it goes based on clients. Some people like it when I come to their office and then some people we meet at public places. It's a lot of referral business, as you would imagine in this, because I obviously, like I said, I don't have a store, so it's not like you can shop browse around. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's mostly referral, but that's how I usually do it. Instagram is huge. Uh, I guess I guess social media right now is the best place to be because obviously you get a much bigger audiences, right? You're not stuck to one location. You're kind of Canada-wide. So you can basically ship Canada or US, whoever, wherever the clients are. But yeah. Mm-hmm. And so with regards to, you know, Risk Time Co. as a business, like what is the process kind of like when it comes to, if someone were to start out, I guess, from the, from the, the very bottom where they're just, they're just starting their company out, like what is sort of the way in which you do things like get stock, 
build clients. You talk about referral, right? But how do you kind of get yourself up to that that first sale? And how do you build a, a stock of, of uh, desirable, I guess, pieces that people are going to want to purchase? Well, when it started for me, uh, obviously it was the old school ways. I would, like I said, I, I had a full-time job, right? so I was managing a telecom business. And when I had time, I would go on Kijiji, probably some deals, you know, find this odd watch, you know, buy it. And then if I saw there's any money in it, you know, I would then repost it or, you know, you can say, quote unquote, flip it and make profit. Like it started like that. But as obviously time passed, I met people, uh, you know, I got introduced to some good people and the right people. And they, some people have certain connections with obviously stores and they try to sell to me and I build my relationship with those people. Now I have constant supply of inventory. I don't have to search for it and go out of my way. You know, people will call me and say, hey, you know, you want, I don't know, Blanc Pond, you know, Omega Seamass, this, 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 this. You, they give me a list and I pick what I want and I just, you know, get it and basically fo photograph it and then post it up on the social media platforms and then it sells. But, but it definitely started like, obviously, I have a buddy who's trying to get like, you know, was telling me, hey, I want to start doing watches. It's not as easy as, you know, it looks like because, you know, all you do, all people see is, you know, you just take pictures and it's done. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of behind the scene work that gets involved with it. Mm -hmm. um, so what are like some of the rules, I guess? You know, I, I imagine it's a uh, a pretty small, tight knit community, particularly in Canada as well. Right. Being being, you know, like one tenth the size population wise of like the United States, like within Canada, I imagine the community is quite small as well, too, of people that are doing what you're doing. So I guess like what are some of like the unspoken rules or spoken rules between people that are, you know, um, gray market dealers, for example, to make sure that business goes smoothly and that it's a it's a healthy market to be in, right? I, I imagine it's really easy to get burned in a in a community like that. And once you're kind of burned, you're not really no one's going to do business with you anymore. Well, anything like first of all, more foremost, it's obviously all about the honesty in my business, right? Because I don't have a you know Ro Rolex logo or a Omega logo on my front, you know, on my business front, you know, that means people have to search and find who I am, right? So. It comes with, all comes with trust, right? Uh, the community is small. You're right. You know, there's a lot of people who do what I do. Uh, you know, gray market dealers, flippers, whatever you want to call them. Um, but it's just the way it works is, you know, when it, whenever we get stuff, a lot of dealers talk to each other. Obviously, you know, if I have stock, and then let's say you're you're a dealer, you have something that I need, and or I have something that you need people trade in between each other. And obviously we got to check for the stuff to being authentic, but because of having access to obviously dealing with the stores direct mm -hmm. and, you know, people that supply you, most of the product, like for example, that comes through my door, my hands is all brand new stuff. And then whenever, like, let's say somebody has a watch, they want to trade it in. Right. And then that new product will be traded for a used one. Then when I get the product, I have to take it to my watchmaker, make sure he, checks everything and that everything is authentic legit and stuff like that there's a lot of work involved uh when coming on obviously buying you stuff but when it comes to a new products kind of more you know mainstream already where it comes from the same source all the time a few different sources all the time mm -hmm. and so when you were building your business up to the point that now you had sort of all these resources and contacts you know was there a lot of sort of like especially even like just like developing like your process that you were talking about so um, like taking in a watch, having it authenticated, having it checked, that type of stuff. Like, was there sort was there sort of a period of trial and error where you maybe had some like 
customer nightmares or, or horror stories that you had to develop during that time phase? Listen, I, I don't think there's any business that would, would be successful without failing at some sort of point, right? Like, of course, I bought stuff that I, you know, for example, I bought a watch, I remember, you know, when I was just starting out and this watch needed a full service, mm -hmm. you know, it was back then I didn't think of, a, you know, purchasing a timographer, so I just bought a watch, you know, and then when I sold it, not knowingly that the watch, you know, needed a service, it was gaining 50 seconds a day or 60 seconds a day, you know, obviously I took the watch back from a client. Right. And I had to ship it. I have to service it. That, that costed money. So that watch sale didn't really generate any profit. If anything, it was, you know, pitfalls. Other than that, you know, it's it's mostly when it comes to like a lot of stuff, like it's a very risky business when you don't have a storefront. You know, you're meeting a client. Let's say somebody wants to meet in a public place. You know, it's whether it's a client or me, you know, you're going to make sure everything is smooth and people are comfortable because, you know, you always have eyes on you, right? No matter where mm -hmm. you go or what you do. And that's the kind of stuff that you always have to watch out for. And, you know, trying to not to kind of, you know, stand out too much with flexing with a gold watch or staying out like, you know, wearing flashy stuff, but right. stuff so, like that. So there's like the security element of it as well too. And then there's also like, the, is it very common as a gray market dealer that people will try and come to sell you like fake stuff on purpose, like knowing it's fake to try and, and you know, I guess swindle someone or something like that. I was lucky enough. I never actually, that never crossed my path in past, mm -hmm. but like, I'm sure there was stories I've, I've heard from other dealers, you know, somebody sold them something that was fake. You know, I have heard of a lot from my clients, you know, before some clients found me, they would obviously all people go like on different Craigslist or Kijiji or some Facebook marketplaces, you know, they find a great deal and they're like, Oh, you know, if there's a watch price thousand dollars below the, you know, required or minimal market price to me, it would automatically signal like something is off. Right. Mm -hmm. either you're getting scammed or the watch is fake or, you know, somebody's trying to rob you or this or that, but some people fall for it, right? They're trying to get a good deal and, you know, you got to be careful, obviously, whether, you know, I don't know who owned the watch before the client who is selling it to me. So there's a lot of stuff like that. I got to watch out for all the time. That's true. Mm -hmm. And so like with regards to, how this industry that you're in works, right? Like, what would you say is the hardest part or the least enjoyable part of it? And what would you say is the most enjoyable part of it for you? Uh, you know, I really love what I do. I don't know if there is something that I can outline that the hardest part is obviously delivering product on a timely manner. And obviously, you know, some people have certain requirements and this and that, like, you know, there's so many hours in a day and there's so much stuff I can do, right? FedEx delivers overnight. I cannot make it faster. You mm -hmm. know, some people need last minute gifts or some people are flying out of the country. They want to watch on their wrist before mm -hmm. they fly out. So obviously like being able to like plan accordingly and sometimes gets overwhelming when you have like seven, eight pieces coming in from FedEx or pure later. And then, you know, you got to ship some stuff out and some people need, oh, I had a situation where three guys told me, hey, my wrist is seven and a half inch. Can you please size it for me before shipping it? You know, those little things kind of create some hiccups, but I wouldn't say it's something that I don't like. I, I enjoy the whole process of it. Um, but the, it's usually, it's always fun, man. Like you meet cool, like-minded people, you know, you always, I always get to chat, you know, 
what got them into the watches. And it's always interesting to see, you know, when you're meeting especially person face to face and you're doing a deal, you know, when they're purchasing a watch, is it their first watch? You know, they tell you cool stories. Oh, I used to have this watch before whatever happened, you know, or some guy told me today, he's like, I bought a Breitling. He bought a Breitling from me not too long ago. He's like, growing up, I always wanted the watch, but I only had a fake one. So now I have a real one. So it's, you know, it's, it's those cool moments. And people usually that buy these things, they obviously like some people celebrate an occasion or they're like, oh, this watch is going to be for my kid that was just born or graduation gift. It's, it's cool. It's like, I find it very like, it's like a thrill you get out of it but every time. And it's always evolving and it's always changing. So it's not like two days will never be the same in a day of like in my life in that sense, which is, you know, something I had in, not in, in my past job. So that's why I kind of enjoy it for sure way more. And so with regards to Risk Time Co. as a company, like what are, what would you say are some of the, you know, I guess core values or some of the important things that matter to, to uh, you as a business owner that maybe are unique compared to, you know, other uh, competitors of yours, right? Without naming the competitors, but just necessarily like what would be, what would be the reason why someone should go to you versus a different dealer or flipper? Um, look, I, I don't it's a tough question you asked me, right? I, I think that one thing I tell my clients is I think what they like the most is, you know, I'm sure as, as a watch hobbyist, you would probably also can relate to that. When somebody buys a watch, mm -hmm. in two, three weeks, they get bored, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, listen, I want to try something else. And what happens in the gray market is obviously, let's say you bought a watch from me and you want to trade it to another guy who has another watch you know, my values of my watches and for example, the other guy is what values of his watches are usually different. So what I tell my client is like, hey, if you're buying this watch, you know, I always give my clients a delta. If you get bored or you want to trade it in, you know, I will always give you, let's say an X amount of dollar delta, which you can trade it back to me, let's say a week or two weeks, obviously given the condition is the same and, you know, get into another watch, stuff like that. So people like that, you know, if they bought a watch, it's too big, too small, or they're bored or they don't like it, they'll call me, hey, Karan, switch me out. You know, I'll bring it back, give them something new, and they're happy. Like, obviously, they know I can do it for free because it takes my time to take the watch mm -hmm. back, to re-photograph it. So people understand that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, honesty, I think, is, the, like I said, it's the most important thing. There's a lot of people out there who are trying to gouge out every penny from everyone, you know. There's been a lot of times where I sold watches for nonprofit, you know, and you can see some of my Google reviews that people spoke about me. Like, you know, I know the guy is, for example, on a certain budget or if the guy is like, you know, tired of losing money. I'm like, listen, if this is my price, I don't want to lose money, but this is your price. I'm happy to give it. Or sometimes I would give people like gifts, you know, obviously I cannot give them like an authorized dealer experience, you know, put the gloves on, you know, give them chocolate, this and that. But, you know, I would throw a guy like an IWC hat or a pen and, they are like happy about it, you know, something they wouldn't be expecting out of like a great transaction, a gray market transaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, like it sounds like you're, you know, you're, you're willing to be quite flexible and go the extra mile for your clients as well too, right? Absolutely. Like, you know, to, to accommodate people's needs and to, uh, you know, do a little something extra just to show them that you appreciate their business or you want to keep them as a, as a returning client. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's awesome. And I think that, you know, those are some really, you know, especially having that um, flexibility with being able to return the watch and get, 
you know, upfront telling them like, Hey, if you bring it back within a certain time frame, like, you know, I'll honor this price or something like that. I think that can be very reassuring for somebody who's purchasing a piece and maybe they're not sure if they're going to like it long-term or going to want to keep it or not. Right. I think that's, that's a wonderful thing, right. It kind of gives them that, um, that exit strategy, should they need it ahead of time that they don't really have to worry about. Yeah, because I, I thought of it, right? Like when people go to a store, right? They have all the time to stand there to mm-hmm. try on, you know, 30, 40 different models, mm-hmm. right? But because I don't have that, like I can't provide that experience yet until I get, you know, everything rolling, then, you know, I think that would be a cool and fair for people because there's a lot of people, you know, they're like, oh, I wanted an Omega Speedmaster or Moonwatch. Oh, great. You know, but some guy says, oh, I never knew the bracelet tapers. Like, you know, I don't know how it feels down the road. So I think it's fair. And I, I thought that would be that my key, you know, factor when dealing with, you know, secondary with my clients. Of course, that doesn't relate to every watch brand, right? Like if Rolex, when people buy brand new watches with stickers, it's a little different. But majority of time, I will definitely honor it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And so with regards to, I guess, like some of your stock, you know, like what role... Um, I guess like how does stock kind of come you talk a little about like how you're at a point now where you have so many people that are kind of calling you and offering you pieces and things like that all the time. How has that sort of uh how does that work with the direction that the market's sort of going now? Like are there certain models that you know regardless of um what's going on in the market, they're still hard to get uh just because of the limited nature of them? Like, you know, what kind of pieces do you sort of primarily deal with? Do you deal with in all different price points or are you uh, mostly like uh, ultra high end? And then how do you get your hands on those pieces uh, that are, I guess, less common, right? I mean, Rolexes are one thing, right? But when we're talking about APs and Bateks and, and, you know, models like that, those aren't models that they're making a ton of a year and they could be hard to come by. So how does that kind of work? Um, so my stock varies, right? Like I usually sell product anywhere from, let's say, 33 grand to, I don't know, like maybe 40, 50 grand, right? Depending on a watch, like I'm just, you know, throwing a number on my top of my head. I don't you know, remember every single, you know, product I have in my inventory, of course. But um, like, like you said, like Rolex, you know, when people offer product, right, like market dictates the prices in the end of the day, right? It's not me who sets them. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw the hype with Rolex and, you know, it's, it's a little down right now. No problem. Like people understand that. But when I, I don't really usually deal a lot with like AP and Patek considering that AP is out of Canada right now, right? You have to people, if you want to get an AP, you have to, you know, source it in from overseas or whatever states. Patek is very exclusive. I haven't actually had many Pateks that go through me. I sourced them for clients. Like whenever I had a client reach out saying they're looking for a particular model, you know, I have my group, like group chats where the dealers talk. I would say if anyone else might have that particular piece and I would be able to source them. But mainly I deal with like mainstream stuff, like, you know, Omegas, Tudors, you know, and everything in that kind of a nature. But that kind of stuff didn't get affected as much as obviously the stuff, like whatever didn't go up crazy premiums, obviously didn't go down that much either because you know when omegas were selling like 30 percent off or whatever than the secondary market that kind of stayed the same it's just the market is a little different now where rolex prices are down and people are saying well i don't know if i should be buying an omega seamaster for five grand when let's say i can buy an op for i don't know just maybe under 10 just giving you an example right mm-hmm. so that would be uh the kind of the the logistics like the thought process for me when i'm buying stuff like 
I and my buying like habits or buying decisions change, you know, monthly and you know, quarterly. I would say depending on what's demand. If I see there is more Panerai's going out, I would try to stock up on Panerai's. And if I see more Omegas are going out, so I would do the same, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so, do you find that? Um it's a different experience kind of focusing more on that. Uh, I wouldn't say affordable, but like more middle of the road luxury models like Omega and Tudor, for example, versus the ultra high end. Like obviously from a sourcing perspective, like you discussed, like you're willing to do that for your clients, but um, like, do you find that there's uh, just a, a lot more business? Is it, is it the price point that makes it a more viable business selling that sort of price range of watch? Or is there, are you able to get better deals on stock? Like, What's sort of the, I guess, the appeal as a dealer for dealing more with um, Omegas and Tudors and that versus the ultra high end? Uh, well, of course, there's way more buyers for like a mid-tier, you know, like let's call it, let's say sub-10 category watches, right? Like anything between five to 10 grand. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's obviously more people in the market for that kind of stuff. I'm not saying there's not a lot of people who are buying, you know, extra high-end stuff or you know let's say 30 40k plus but then the market is obviously you know the dealing uh when people are buying that kind of a stuff you can't be stocking too much of that product because again based back to whatever we just discussed the product volatility right Mm -hmm. like if i'm going to be stocking let's say uh i don't know like a let's say rolex daytona even stainless steel panda you know that watch went up well, went down all the way from like 70,000 all the way down to 45, right? So I can't stock it, you know, at 65 for more than X amount of obviously, you know, weeks, months, because the price will continue going down versus stocking an Omega wouldn't really matter too much, you know, sitting on it for six months or eight months because, you know, it doesn't, like the price doesn't change as much as it would on a Rolex or an AP or a Patek. Now, I don't, like I said, because I don't deal with that, those kind of a level of watches that much, um, you know, not the, I'm the, I have a different demographics of people that are reaching out, but for sure there's way more people are, you know, in the market for that kind of a mid-tier luxury watches, I would say, for sure. Mm-hmm. And so what would you say are some of your hottest moving pieces, right? What, what would you say are the pieces that maybe go through your hands the most? Well, Omegas, you know, they, they sell steady, IW, like Omega Seamasters, whenever, I guess when people call me and they say, hey, and I'm looking for a gift for, let's say, my son, he's graduating, I don't know, college or university, you know, what would you recommend for five grand, right? And you always, that five grand watch is always like that Omega Seamaster. You know, if somebody has a budget of a 10 grand or they have a budget of, you know, 15 grand, the way I look at it is I think every brand has its price category. If we're not talking about right now, precious metals, you know, whenever people think of a five grand watch on a secondary market, it's always that Omega Seamaster, maybe some sort of a Grand Seiko, you know, or maybe, I don't know, like a Tudor, like a chronograph or something in that nature. Whenever you think of a 10 grand category, there's very few people who are looking to buy $10,000 Omega because we're already approaching like a Rolex territory where people can spend a little money and get a Rolex. Not saying a Rolex is a better watch than Omega, but you know how people in their minds, they thought that Rolex once was high. You know, if I buy it low, maybe it'll go back up. And it goes basically on, I, I spread my inventory like, you know, 5K, 10K, 15, 20, and et cetera. Anything else is afterwards. 
but Omega sell well, Tudors sell well, Grand Seiko is doing extremely well. Uh, you know, they're phenomenal dials, they're fit, fit and finishes just next level. A lot of people love their bright links, you know. It also depends on, I guess, the age of a client, you know, what the purpose of the watch. But those are, I would be my kind of main, you can call it bread and butter. Like, Yeah, and so like, where does the, and I don't know, do you deal in vintage at all or have you dealt in vintage at all? Vintage, you mean like what? Like vintage pieces? What's, like what's vintage? Well, well, I don't know. I guess like, you know, uh, like 60s, 70s, 80s. Oh no, I I haven't dealt with vintage. To be honest with you, I know I get a lot asked that a lot on my Instagram. Like, hey, how come you don't carry vintage? Um, I had a bad experience one time when I somebody gave sold me a vintage watch, and when I took it to my watchmaker, like the watch was like whole, you know, Frankenstein, like reassembled. Everything was all over the place, and I told myself I'm not touching. You know, I'm sure that I know there's a lot of people who collect vintage and I know I have a lot of clients who wear vintage, even though they don't buy vintage for me, but they like their stuff. But it's just for me, like a one man show kind of an operation, it's a little hard to get involved, like dealing with, you know, older stuff where it requires a little bit more like work to be dealing with vintage pieces. So I try to shy away from that. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Yeah. So what's the, I guess if you kind of walk through, um, I guess almost like a day in the life of like what it is when you, like you wake up in the morning and, you, and you're about to go start doing your work for the day. What does that sort of look like? And what does that look like in conjunction with like, so you maybe you intake a new piece, what sort of journey does that watch go through before it's available to be sold? Um, so my day starts usually around 7 a.m., um, you know, because I have two little kids. So mm -hmm. I get up when they get up. <laughs> so that's kind of a story. Um, my day, I, I usually start my day by obviously checking my Instagram messages, you know, mm -hmm. seeing if there's any inquiries or any emails I got from website or any messages, like Facebook messages. Um, by noonish, I get FedEx packages or Pure Later packages coming in. That's how I know there's product coming. Um, so whenever I get the product, I have to, obviously, if it's new or used, it gets split up, right? If it's a new product, I would have to photograph it. So it takes some time to do that. If it's used product, I have to, you know, time it, you know, make sure everything is good. The condition is good and everything is on par. If not, you know, I photograph the product regardless. And then, you know, I post it up on my website and then I do my deliveries. So I usually schedule my appointments to meet clients either a day before or a few days, sorry, a day later or a few days later, because I have to go to the bank to get the product. I keep my watches at the bank and I keep my boxes like empty boxes with warranty cards at home. So I would have to go to the bank, grab the piece and then, you know, meet up, do the face-to-face -face meets. And if there's anything to be shipped out, you know, product gets packaged up and goes out to FedEx, you know, it's pretty, you know, it's like that. And then during the day you're on the phone all day. So your battery, you know, is dead by three o'clock because someone's always calling. Someone's always inquiring about stuff, you know, but day is usually like, you know, it's hard to say, like, when my parents always ask me, it's like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? They always ask me. Because you can be doing, you know, you can be packing a watch, ready to ship out. And then even though you had a client at two o'clock, but right before, in between that, there's somebody else saying, hey, is there a chance I can buy this right now? Mm -hmm. So your date automatically shifts, right? So when it shifts, it, it like, it changes as basically as you go. So you're going to be very, you know, 
adaptive in this business. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. You got to learn how to like change things up on the go, which is hard sometimes with two kids, but you know, trying to manage that as much as I can. Well, it's, it's part of being a business owner as well, right? Is you just, you know, it, it, the responsibility lies on you. So you got to find a way to make it work, right? You, you know, if you don't, aren't able to make a deal or something like that work out, that's money walking out the door, right? Of course. Yeah. That's, that sounds, it sounds like a very interesting and like kind of, um, it sounds very dynamic and it sounds a lot like it can be a very rewarding kind of day. Like you, you, you get to wake up and your day's different every single day and it gets to be sort of exciting because there's always that element of the unknown of like, you know, who's going to be a new client, what pieces are coming, what pieces are going, what, what's someone going to want, that type of thing. And it can really, you know, you can have, I would imagine some really, really good days in a month and you can have some, you know, maybe not so great days in a month. Yeah, absolutely. And it's cool because, you know, whenever you head to clients' offices, like I sold a panel I watched to a gentleman who is a manager at um, Aston Martin or Bugatti downtown Toronto. Like, it's a cool experience. He's like, why don't you come down to my office? You know, are you kidding me? Obviously, I'm going to be down there, like right. looking at these. It's it's cool. Like, you know, you get to sit down in the office and there's like a $1.2 million car behind you or something. It's and it's always different. Like I have clients who are inviting me to come to my restaurant, you know, while we're selling a watch, we're eating because they're making food. It's, that's what I like about it, I guess. That's what kind of gets me going. The drive is that it's every time it's a unique place. It's a unique situation. It's a unique client. I sell, I sell watches to a guy who has a glass factory, like, you know, for argument's sake, you know, we walk in and they're making glass or either. It's, it's cool. It's definitely cool. You get to say like some people actually, you know, for them, they sit down, they want to have lunch. Like, hey, can I buy you a beer? Can we talk? You know, people don't really, you know, see it as a job. Like, I guess a lot of people think it's like my side hobby. You know, like one guy told me, he's like, do you want to, he's like, can I fly you out to BC um, to, I don't know. I don't remember what was the situation. He needed a watch for graduation. He's like, would you mind flying it out here to get a watch uh, sized or something? He was new to this. I'm like, dude, you don't need to fly me in for sizing a watch. Like, you can go to anyone out there and then, you know, to any watchmaker and they'll size it for you. All you need is just a screwdriver. But it's it's definitely cool experiences. That's for sure, man. It sounds like you really get to like, you get to have so many cool different, like you said, experiences in a day and you can go to so many cool places and see so much of, I guess, society and so many unique characters and individuals, right? I mean, when you're talking about, you know, you're hanging out at, you know, a, a Bugatti dealership with a $1.2 million car behind you, or like you said, going to a glass factory and you're, you know, in more of like a blue collar environment, seeing people make, make glass. I mean, that's, you know, they're two ex- exclusive, unique, uh, experiences that people don't necessarily are going to get on either end but it's they're sort of worlds apart in the same way as well too but it's so cool for you to be able to experience both in in a day or in a week right yeah absolutely yeah that's wonderful so what i guess like how has um how has i suppose being a dealer impacted your own uh views on uh the watch world for example, and maybe on what you like to collect or, or brands that you enjoy or or you enjoy less now after having to deal with them? Um, I, growing up, I always thought the coolest watch is the Yacht Master in a 44 mil. Now mm-hmm. I would never wear that watch. You know, it's just, I guess the view changes with perspective. And when you get, obviously, to see all these things, you know, people say, what's your collection? You know, 
I do have a collection, right? I do have a few pieces in my collection, but every, the more I think about it, the more I understand, I'm like, well, like if I'm a car salesperson, right? Do I really need a car? Like I can just drive any of them, right? Mm -hmm. So technically I'm a watch dealer. Like, do I really need a watch? Because I can just wear any of them, but I do. Because when I buy my watches, I usually buy them at certain times in my life and then with a sentimental value. Like I bought a Panerai when my daughter was born, mm -hmm. you know? I bought myself a watch. I told myself if I, you know, hit that much in sales, I'd like to get this watch for myself. So if I hit that number, I'm going I want to buy it. Like and I see that a lot of people tend to like not a lot, but a, a lot of like collectors, they obviously like to buy to fill up the watch boxes with the certain pieces they like, but a lot of guys that are like for example, you know, I have guys who buy watches once a week. I have guys that buy watches once every six months. Mm -hmm. So I can't say everyone's the same. But my my perspective on watches is is that, like I said, I like to buy with certain things to to mem to the memory of a certain things in my life, or like to celebrate certain good moments in my life. But my perspective, my my view on watches definitely changed. Right, like what I used to think was cool is like having a big forty seven millimeter watch on your wrist. Even though like my wrist is only like seven and a quarter, like I can't pull it off. I used to think it was cool. Now I say like, no, that's, you know, it's not my style, but yeah. But other than that, brand wise, you know, I was never like a, you know, Rolex diehard fan or AP diehard fan. I was always, my, my view on watches was very broad because I think that every watch has its own like it's unique in its own way, right? Like that's why people collect. If you could have just bought one watch and that watch would do it all, like it wouldn't be fun. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I don't want to say I'm against a certain brand or I love more a certain brand. I do wear more of Gerard Perregaux. I do like my Omegas more. I, I wear them more often. You know, I do love my Panerais, um, mm -hmm. but there, I don't think there's a brand that I, you know, I don't like. I know people hate on Hublot. I know a lot of people that hate on Hublot, but I actually think they're cool watches. Mm -hmm. You know, I just think they're a little too big for me, but I think they're cool watches. And I don't know. Well, I think that's an interesting perspective, right? I mean, we're talking about brands like uh, like Panerai and Hublot, for example, where, yeah, they get, they get a lot of hate from people. And, you know, have they always been phenomenal in some of their business practices, for example? No, I mean, there's lots of companies that haven't always been, but they learn and they improve and they, you know, they sort of, you know, solidify what they are in the public consciousness. But I think that when you're able to handle these pieces of on a daily, on a regular basis, I mean, I, I could totally see how you would develop sort of an appreciation. I mean, even going back to like your Gerard Perigo, right? I mean, that's a brand that like we said at the beginning of this episode, they haven't always gotten the uh, respect that they've deserved despite making fantastic pieces, but you're able to appreciate it for what it is because you've had the opportunity to handle them, right? Same thing with, with Panerai, same thing with Hublot. I would be inclined to agree. I mean, I had a, I just actually handled the Hublot for the first time last week and I thought it was super cool. I was like, you know, I mean, it's not, is it for everybody? No, just like Panerai is not for everybody or, or, or any Absolutely. other brand. But I think if you could appreciate it for what it is and you're not paying exorbitantly overpriced for it, for what it is. And that's, I think, where some people get 
get iffy, right? Is like using like, you know, base Salida or ETA movements and then charging people 15 grand or something like that. That's where it can kind of get a little bit iffy for people. But if you can pick up a Hublot for, you know, between like four and seven grand, I think that's a pretty cool watch to have at that price point. And there's plenty of watchmaking uh, history and, and good uh, engineering in those cases and in those watches. No, I totally agree. I just think the way the watch trend is, is that like, you know, people want what's hot, right? Mm -hmm. If I always get those clients that say, hey, do you know what, what, uh, I don't know, like Daniel Craig was wearing in this movie? Or do you know what this guy, it's like, you know, I know Djokovic wears Hublot. Mm -hmm. A buddy of mine was in, on vacation and he saw Djokovic walk by and he had a Hublot on, right? Mm -hmm. So it's obviously certain people are brand ambassadors for certain companies. I get it. But, um, you know, like, I, I don't, it's like, I don't think everybody really likes, Ro like, let me ask you this question. If Rolex was attainable, do you think everyone would go crazy for the brand? Like, if it was easily attainable? Well, like, my, and, and so, like, my opinion on Rolex has always been that they make um, watches, they make watches for people who appreciate nice watches, but aren't necessarily watch people. Right. Like, like it's, it's, it's a great watch that you could just go and buy. If you know, go and buy it, it's a good watch. It'll last you multiple generations. You don't have to worry about it done. But if you're a watch person or a watch enthusiast, you know, there's so much more out there and there's so many more interesting stories and, and, and brands out there that, yeah, like if it wasn't, if it wasn't hard to get it, it wasn't the most recognizable brand in the world. And it wasn't so hyped because of its marketing machine. It, it I don't think people would care as much as, they do right now with the way it is in the market yeah and I, I think it all comes down to that right it's it's because it's hype and because it's the you know recognition like i i don't get me wrong i'm not saying rolex is a bad watch no, they're great watches they're they're bulletproof they're they made to last right mm -hmm. they're tool watches in the end of the day right they were never to be a flex culture watch that they became now but i like you said i think you know if you compare to like some of my friends say, you know, for retail price, I don't think there's a better watch than Rolex, right? Sure, maybe that's true to some, but for others, like I think Jacques Lacoutier has a much better, you know, value when you look in terms of perspective and history and this and that. But like I said, to each their own. Mm -hmm. I, I never judge any, you know, I don't judge Hublot guys and I don't judge Rolex guys, so... I think in your instance, though, like being able to handle watches, be around them all day, experience so many different brands and types of watches, you're sort of able to um, maybe not become as disillusioned with the marketing. Like you're, you're able to sort of use the marketing to a certain degree to your advantage in the sense that like, you know, if you bring in a Rolex, you know, it's going to move because people want them. Right. Yeah. But for you, you're not, you're not necessarily so disillusioned with the constant marketing machine that surrounds a lot of these brands. And you can just appreciate these individual watches for just what they are. Right. And that sort of Absolutely. gives you that, that, that next level of appreciation for just a good watch, regardless of the brand or, or who makes it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's something that's really, really, really cool. So you mentioned, you know, a couple of pieces that are in your collection um, and maybe how, you know, what you've been doing uh, with regards to, to Risk Time Co. You sort of sort of influenced uh, your collection a little bit. You know, what other pieces are in your collection? What do you collect personally or what have you collected for your own personal collection? So my first watch was an Omega Seamaster 300 ceramic non-wave dial. I bought that watch um, maybe around eight years ago in Paris when I was traveling. So that watch is still in my collection. You know, 
it's you know it's it's dear to my heart because it was my first true luxury watch i actually have a watch that i wore in college which was a seiko 5 mm. you know it was like a hundred dollar watch back then but mm. i still have it it's actually it was never polished it's in the same condition i wore it and i you know once in a while i pick it up i look at it i'm like wow it's 36 mil how did i even wear this it's kind of looks small now but you know um so my next piece after the omega seamaster um i purchased a brightling super ocean when i was in mexico on vacation i because i at that time i was and that was like around maybe five years ago i always thought like when people had brightlings that was cool you know back to the marketing thing again this was before all i got into the watch business you know hustle so that was my collection before that Obviously, after I got into the business, I've added a few cooler pieces. I have a Speedy Tuesday. Mm. Um, you know, I bought it off a client three, four years ago or two years ago. I don't remember. Absolutely love the watch. I have it on a custom strap. You know, I think every collection needs to have a Speedmaster. And I think, like, that's the Speedmaster to have, for me at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have a couple of Rolexes. I have a Sea Dweller 43 mil in a red writing. I bought it because it has the warranty card has my birthday on it. So I thought that was kind of cool, you know, because the chances of me getting one on my birthday would probably be slim regardless. Right. Um, I, what else do I have? Well, I have the Gerard Pergolariato, of course. Um, then I bought, purchased a Panerai. It's a 13, oh, 1390. It's a 42 mil Carbotech with a blue dial and GMT hand. Wow. Um, I, yeah, I bought that watch when my daughter was born. Um, so, you know, I you know, wear it for her birthdays. I wear it when I go see certain clients. I have a very interesting approach to selling watches. Is like actually somebody asked me that today. Whenever I go out and I sell somebody an Omega, I try to wear an Omega. Mm-hmm. If I go out and I'm selling a Rolex, I'm trying to wear a Rolex. Uh, I remember a funny story I'll tell you. Actually, I went in and I, I sold a watch to a guy. I, didn't, I wasn't really thinking about it. I was wearing a solid gold Rolex Daytona on my wrist. And I was selling a $3,000 tutor. So because I didn't realize that, I didn't do it purposely. I picked up that watch and I just didn't want to leave it in the car. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to slap it on my The time was not even set properly. It was just, I just put it on. So I just don't leave it in the car. When I sold the watch to the guy, the tutor, he's like, do you mind if I ask you what's on your wrist? So I kind of, show, I, I didn't even think I just pulled out my sleeve. I showed it to him. He's like, oh, that's a nice watch. And then, you know, I don't know. The feeling I got from that, day from that conversation you know i don't want people to feel like i'm better than them or you know it you feel more comfortable when you're when you're standing next to each other like you know shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. it's like you know when you go to somewhere and then you pull up in a bmw for example if you drive bmw and somebody's driving worse car you always get that feeling that there's someone's better than you or above you so after that day i kind of set myself a rule that whenever I go and if I'm selling that brand of a watch, I better have the same level of a brand of the watch on my wrist, you know, unless I'm selling something unique, obviously might not have another one. Well, I but, think it, yeah. I think it sort of, it sort of provides that perception of, and it's not this perception. Cause I think after talking to you, Phil, last little bit here, like it, it is how you honestly feel like you have that appreciation for all brands and watches. Right. And if you show up to sell a guy, a tutor and you show up with another tutor or an Omega or something on your wrist, and it's something that's reasonably in the same kind of price category, it shows like, okay, this guy kind of gets it and he's one of us. Whereas like yeah. if, you sh- if you show up and you have a solid gold Rolex on your wrist 
and you're just, you know, selling a guy a $3,000 watch with that on your wrist, it can sort of have that perception, like you said, of like, you know, well, I, I don't really care about this deal. I don't really care about this watch because I'm dealing with these all day long. I don't need to worry about, you know, what I'm selling you. This doesn't really mean anything to me. And it sort of removes that that uh, human element from the deal and potentially and that, and that connectedness that you that you develop with your clients over time, right? No, you said it. I think you just nailed it. The way you said it is perfect. Um, you got it absolutely. Plus, it's a conversation started, right? Yeah. Hey, you know, what do you like about this tutor or oh, this tutor? You know, like, you know, talk about some straps. But yeah, you got it. Well, you're setting up an opportunity potentially for a future sale as well, too. You know that this guy can already shop in this price range, right? So if you, you know, if you're wearing another five thousand dollar watch and he's buying a five thousand dollar watch, potentially after he gets to check that piece out that's on your wrist, that might be the next one that he wants to buy. Whereas if a sure. guy's working with a five thousand dollar budget. And you're wearing a fifty thousand dollar watch. It's like, okay, well, you know, that one's probably not for me, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, I think that's, yeah. I think that's super cool. That's really neat. That makes that's a, that's an interesting perspective. That element of kind of mirroring your clients and their tastes when you go and actually sell them the watch. So, with the regards to, I guess, Wrist Time Co. And uh, sort of further development of the of the company. Like, what are some of your short term, intermediate, and uh, long term plans for the company? Uh, that's a good one too. Um, like I said earlier, I, I, I am planning to get an office space this year. Um, I think that would be my next step. Um, and I am looking, I, I already have somebody that's helping me move my product. You know, like the guy, I don't want to say he works for me, doesn't work for me, but he helps me sell. He gets paid, right? I guess you can call him like a part-timer, but commission only type of environment. So I, I do want to set up an office where I can have in-house watchmaker, you know, when I, I can have um, a few sales people. So I am looking to hire and I'm looking to get an office space so I can, you know, reach the next level because, you know, there's so much I can do alone. And to be honest with you, like I have like 3,800 followers. Like I don't even have that many followers, but the volume to handle that is it gets overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So my, I would say my next year, my, you know, short term plans would be probably just to kind of write out the market, see what happens. Cause obviously we're in a very uncertain market right now, you know, with interest rate rising, like people are worried. Um, my, you know, so I gotta make sure to, you know, watch the market, you know, play it safe, you know, not to overstock right now. Uh, but the long-term goals would be definitely to, you know, grow, expand, you know, hire and, you know, hopefully get a YouTube channel, something mm -hmm. that I was thinking about, you know, so I can do like a day in a, you know, day in a life of a dealer, you know, something cool for people to see. Cause I think like a lot of people don't really know what I have to do, but I, I would, I thought it would be cool. A lot of guys in America do it. I'm sure you've seen couple of the, you know, Roman Charfer's video, like the gray market and other guys. I think it's cool. Mm -hmm. It would be, you know, nice to do that. But, you know, again, that's all in the future. I don't know. Do it from a Canadian perspective. So you just, it's all the same, but you're just slipping on sidewalks and carrying Tim Hortons all the time, right? That's it. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> that's super cool. And then what, and so those are kind of like the, the short-term and the intermediate, but what about like, what's the long-term vision? I mean, I understand there's some insert, some uncertainty right now with just the market and kind of the way it's going, but ideally maybe, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, where would you like to see your company being? 
I, I, you know what, Rico, I haven't even thought that far, to be mm-hmm. honest. Like, I've only been in this business full time, like I said, three, four years ago. I kind of play it by ear and see how it goes. But I, I don't know. I, I haven't even thought that far. Who knows what's going to happen in, you know, five, 10 years. It's exciting, Maybe right? Yeah, for sure, it's exciting. Maybe someone's going to be knocking on the door when buy me out. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows, right? Maybe, maybe but, you're the big, you're the biggest name in North America. Who knows, right? So, I mean, nah, you, can, you gotta stay humble. Of course, of yeah. course, but you never know yeah. what the future holds. Just like you don't really know necessarily what your next day is gonna hold, right? So, I think that there's, you know, you've given us so much insight and and so much to. Uh, to think about, which is sort of like the way you do your business. You've given us also a, a lot of uh, insight, just kind of like who you are, right? And and the person behind the company. And I think that that's one of the things that goes back to one of the oldest tenants in uh, in watch buying and watch selling in general is it's not just, you're not just buying a watch, you're buying the seller, right? And, Absolutely. And, I, and I think that you, you know, with you, with you giving us this insight into yourself and how you operate and the honesty and transparency in what you have and in, in your business, I think that, you know, it's, it's a legitimately great place that people can go to pick up their watches. And, and I think that that's something people should really uh, consider. And, and, you know, you have my, uh, you have my seal of approval, my thumbs up. So I think that's, uh, that's something that uh, is, is really, really cool. And I appreciate you coming on the show to talk to us today about all that. What are some of the places where people can, uh, find you interact with uh yourself or uh purchase uh, or look at the stock for risk time co so my instagram usually has my most up-to-date inventory uh, my handle is the risk time co um, i also have product on my website um risktimeco.com it's uh it gets updated weekly it doesn't get updated daily uh people can contact me through my email you know social media platforms like i mentioned instagram when you go on my website, there's like a line where you can go WhatsApp and, you know, drop a message on all, all kinds of different, you know, platforms there is. So you can definitely find me on one of the big, big social media sites. Yeah, I'll be sure to drop links to uh, some of your landing platforms just uh, in the description box below on the podcast platforms and also on YouTube as well. Uh, additionally, for myself, if anyone has any questions, comments, feedback, feel free to shoot me an email at RicosWatchesPodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy this episode across the various uh, audio platforms that it's on, such as Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, and you'd like to enjoy this episode in a video medium, head over to the Rico's Watches Podcast YouTube channel, which is just Rico's Watches Podcast. Just be sure to like, subscribe, hit that bell icon, leave a comment, all that YouTube stuff, because that all helps out with the show quite a lot. Additionally, if you want to just follow along with the show, uh, sort of what I am up to, giveaways, uh, just wrist shots, all that kind of stuff. Uh, head over to do uh, Rico's Watches podcast on Instagram. Just give a follow over there as well, too. And feel free to shoot me a DM and uh, we can chat. Thanks so much, Ran. It's been so much fun chatting with you. It was really fun learning about Risk Time Co. today and all the awesome things that you are doing, your insights into the market, your insights into the industry, and, and just hearing about kind of what you do in a day. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Rico. Thank you for taking the time to talk. And it was definitely a pleasure. Of course. We'll have to get you back on again sometime soon to give uh, you know some more insights into the market and the things that are going on uh, as things develop with uh, everything that's happening in the world. Oh, absolutely. I would love to join again. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.